The content of this episode is about residential and day schools. This subject may be upsetting to some listeners and may be triggering for those who have been affected by these traumas. Welcome to Gunawake Collective Impact's podcast, KCI Kindle, creating space for meaningful dialogue. The goal of this podcast is to open up a safe space for community members to have conversations about current social issues, both inter-community and global issues, culture and heritage and language. This space encourages respectful expression of different opinions and perspectives. The opinions and perspectives expressed belong to the guests of the show and do not reflect those of KCI. Have you ever been gaming or working online classes and your internet service constantly gets interrupted? First Nations Fiber is about to ensure that just won't happen again. Get ready for high speed at a new level. Click on fnfiber.com and sign up today. First Nations Fiber, empowering people through connectivity. Welcome to the pilot episode of KCI Kindled. We still have some kinks that we're trying to smooth out for you guys. My name is Karina Peterson. I am the communications coordinator at Gunawage Collective Impact. And we have our co-host, uh, Denon Phillips. Hello. <laughs> and we have a guest in studio with us today. We have Wahasu Whitebean. Wahasu is the education research coordinator at the Gunawage Education Center and a PhD candidate at McGill University. So today's topic, the reason why we have her in studio with us is we're discussing residential schools and how it's affected multi-generational families and uh, education. And Wahasu has a, a background in that, which is why uh, we have her today. So I guess just to start off, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how, how you are, I guess, uh, knowledge of uh, residential schools and why you chose this path. So my name is Wahesu Cheyenne Whitebean. So some of you know me as Wahesu Sama Cheyenne growing up. I, I'm from Gahnawage. I'm Wolf Clan. I have three kids and my partner Merrick is from here. And so not many people know that I have some of my family is also from Agwazaste. And so I have Indian residential school survivors in my family on my mother's side. And like most people here, I have a lot of Indian day school survivors or former students in my family as well. And so I've been in university for close to a decade now as a full-time student. I did my three degrees back to back and I started out at Concordia doing um, my BA in First People Studies. And so that's kind of where this whole thing started, working on Indian residential school, Indian day school and that whole educational history. So it, you know, it just, it went from there. I did my master's degree. I did an individualized program. So I just built my own master's degree and I did um, a, an oral history project on the day schools here, which is really limited in scope because, you know, it was a master's, so I could only work with four elders. Mm -hmm. So at the present time, I'm a PhD candidate at McGill in the Department of Integrated Studies and Education. And I'm doing my, my doctoral research on Indian day schools here, and I'm doing a comprehensive study of the history of, school, of Indian day schools. And so it, inter it connects with Indian residential schooling and, and there's a lot of overlapping, especially in families as well. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of what I do. And then I work at the Gahnawag Education Center as the Education Research Coordinator. I chair the Ethics Committee. I co-authored the first research policy and code of ethics for the ed system, mm -hmm. which is we newly implemented. So thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you for, for coming on. We're family. We're related. We're cousins. And I've always known that you've been in school for a really long time, but I think this is like the first time I'm hearing about all the studies that you're, you've actually been doing and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So the goal or the path of this show is really just to have a conversation about the residential schools and day schools. And I guess to specifically connect it to Gunawage here and how we've been kind of dealing with the traumas from it, what the day schools and residential schools actually are. And maybe some of the positive changes that kind of came out of it. I know it sounds a little bit crazy to talk about residential schools and positive changes, but we have seen a shift in education. We have seen some changes in our community. We have seen healing. So those are all some positive things that, that are just happening mm -hmm. <laughs> from mm -hmm. this now because we are progressing and moving forward. So I guess to, to begin the conversation is maybe to just talk about a little bit of the history or, or what, what is a residential school? What is a day school for some of our listeners who are tuning in? 
maybe they don't have knowledge or background, or maybe it's just something that they don't know about yet. So I'm wondering if you'd be able to give us a little bit of what is it? What is a day school? What is a residential school? So to start out, more people are familiar with Indian residential school, let's just say in the general public. So Indian residential schools were also known as boarding schools or industrial schools, especially in the States. So we use residential school more commonly here in Canada, so-called Canada. Um, and so these are institutions that were created uh, purposefully for the assimilation and, and conversion of Indigenous children. And so it's widespread across North America. And that's what Indian day schools have in common with residential schools. Same program, same purpose, operated by, you know, religious orders, different, you know, religious denominations. And the main difference between the two being that at an Indian residential school, children, they locate the schools far away from the community on purpose so that the families don't have access to the children. And so children would be taken Ordinarily, it was a forced removal through compulsory attendance policies, especially once the Indian Act came in force. So when you're talking about the Indian Act coming into play in 1876, you see in the late 1880s this proliferation of Indian day schools, Indian residential schools being developed. And that's where there's a shift. Prior to that, there's something they like to call mission schools. When you do this kind of research and this kind of work, they'll, they'll say a mission school and they mean the earlier day schools, mostly they were in day schools or seasonal schools that religious authorities would open in communities and it would just kind of be out of their own pocket and through their own effort. Once there's federal policy backing these institutions, they become federal Indian day schools. And so that's kind of a difference. And so that they had the same objective and the same purpose, and that was to just for cultural erasure, language loss. So at these institutions, the vast majority of children were forbidden from speaking their language and so on. I, I guess we'll get into that in conversation a little bit more about what happened at the schools. So those are the main three, mission school, Indian day school, and Indian residential school. And there is something called a day scholar. And when you hear that term in the media or, you know, maybe you read about it, what they're referring to is not actually a day school. They're referring to children who went to an Indian residential school for the day, but they returned home at the end of the day. So those individuals weren't eligible to apply for the Indian residential school settlement agreement. So there's all of these, these rules around eligibility and all of these different terms that are used. But essentially, these places are created for the same purpose. So the day school, at, at least they get to go home at the end of the day, but it's still the same thing that's being implemented in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same type of curriculum, same mm -hmm. policy, same objective, you know, and that's, you know, that's one of the special things about doing Indian day school research is that because the children were in the community, when you talk to someone, especially some of the elders we have in the community today that I've talked with who are older, let's like say in their 80s and 90s. So they were in a much earlier period of day schooling. Mm -hmm. You get you get a picture and that context of what's happening in the community at the time not just what they knew that happened in the school. They give you this kind of condensed life story. And then you really start to understand how big the system was mm -hmm. and how much power they had over the people. Uh, and I think that's really important. And that's the, one of the main differences between um, Indian res residential school and Indian day school is, you know, you get a lot more of a deeper understanding of the community, the picture of what's happening in the community at the time. In a way, because residential schools sent the children off reserve, it's almost like the communities were kind of able to preserve, I guess, a little bit of culture, of tradition, because, I mean, it's not great that the children were taken away. But when you think of day school, like you said, it's like a community wide thing now. So now mm -hmm. it's happening in the community now. So it's almost like it's at the heart. I mean, the kids are our heart. So wherever they go, that's where the heart goes right but mm -hmm. I could see how that's a little bit how it makes a difference to have a day school right here like for example in Ganawage and then the whole community just has to abide by that and how much it changes everything mm -hmm. absolutely and, and people have a tendency I think it's natural to compare the two so they're trying to everyone wants to when they want you present them with new information you want to understand it based on whatever kind of knowledge you already possess. And so people know about residential schools. So they'll ask me to compare a lot. And so there was approximately, I know they estimated around 150,000 children went to Indian residential school throughout its history. 
And those are estimates. And there was approximately 40,000 claimants in the Indian residential school survivor, uh, the whole settlement process mm -hmm. uh, in Canada. And so by comparison, they say there's about double the Indian day school, the number of Indian day school people, either survivors or former students. I use both of those terms, survivor and former student, because not everyone wants to be called a survivor. Mm -hmm. I think there's, you know, we could have a whole other conversation about that sort of language of victimization and the language the court uses and how they determine, you know, that you survive something or that you're eligible for compensation. But some people don't like me to, to refer to them as a survivor. So I say both, mm -hmm. just not to, to be inclusive. So in comparison, you know, if more than twice uh, the number of, of people went to day school, uh, by comparison, we know very little about their experience. And so I started working on this before the settlement was approved. Mm -hmm. I started working on this topic as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. so it's just a kind of a coincidence that it became this hot topic all of a sudden in research or in the media. But for me, it was about something completely different, you know, my motivations. Mm -hmm. The uh, day school, when was the last, when was the last time it was around? I officially on the books, they consider the schools in Gahnawage as Indian day schools up to 1988. 1988. Yeah. And what made the change from it? becoming or from day school to not being considered a day school anymore? Well, that change really started in Gahnawaga specifically in mm -hmm. 1969. And that was the, what they call the joint unification agreement. So there used to be two different school boards, a Catholic and a Protestant school board for the different schools, denominational schools. And when they united the two and said, finally, and I, I see this in the archives. I mm -hmm. do a lot of archival research for many, many years, for decades, the community fought trying to have a non-denominational school, a unified school for the kids, and to no avail. They fought for a lot of things that never came to be. So when this finally occurred in 1969, there was a big shift. So the schools shifted from, they were called, there was a girls and a boys school, Roman Catholic, like RC for short, and they shifted into Cattery School. So it was this big shift. So the kids, mm. the, the people who were in school at that time in 1969 went from wearing a uniform and going to that school to no uniforms and going to Cattery School. And it was still the same building from what I understand, but there was a shift. And it, But for a while after that, there were still nuns here. Mm -hmm. So my generation, I'm the tail end of the transition generation. I'm a claimant in the settlement, having started school in the 80s. There were still some nuns left and I've talked to people in their, like in their 40s. I'm, I'm almost 40, so who were taught by a nun. Mm -hmm. And so had a experiences that are similar to a lot of other people who were taught by nuns. So you're not talking about something in the distant past. You're talking about generations of people living today who live through this. And so those are the kinds of experiences that I, you know, and the kind of stories that I'm listening to and I'm seeking out right now in the community. I'm actually doing interviews and archival research right now. So this, this is part of my research for, you know, for McGill. I didn't know that about Cattery School, about the, the girls' school and the boys' school. And it's so apparent now because on Facebook, there's a group, Ganawage Old Photo Share. And you see a lot of these old class photos popping up from like the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. And they are wearing uniforms and they are all girls in the photo or all boys in the photo. And I never, it never clicked mm -hmm. until just now. I'm like you, I'm at the tail end of that era of day schools, I guess, but I, I didn't have experience with nuns in there. They were already gone by the time I had started, but I have a sibling that went through it, an older sibling. So yeah, it really is just like yesterday. It feels like yesterday. It hasn't been that long. Mm -hmm. And even when they, they did the switch in the 70s, my mom went to school in the 70s. And a lot of people around that time um, said that the schoolyard was still divided boys and girls. You, wouldn't, you weren't allowed on one half of the schoolyard. And so some of those old ideologies persisted into mm -hmm. like the 70s and the 80s. And it, it's taken us quite a while to, um, you know, we, we basically had to rebuild curriculum and from the ground up, you know, mm -hmm. it's day schools were springboards into either public schooling, because in some communities, when day schools closed or residential schools closed, the kids were sent to off reserve if, if there was no community school and they were sent to public schools and communities like ours, they were springboards into community education. And so one of the things I, I do when I do presentations and talks about this, I like to show an old photo of Cattery School from 1928 
And then I show a photo in the same location I took of Kateri's school myself. Mm-hmm. And then I show my, my school photos just to demonstrate to people that, you know, this just, the school just sort of morphed into a community school. But mm-hmm. many people in the community that have shared their stories with me talk about maybe they have children or grandchildren in the school today, mm-hmm. that they physically feel sick being in the building or approaching mm-hmm. the building. Mm-hmm. Some people have PTSD mm-hmm. and so on. And so that's powerful. Um, I, I like to challenge those ideas that, you know, I hear a lot of comments on, I see a lot of comments online, like get over it and let it go. And it's been a long time and it hasn't really been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But that's exactly where multi-generational trauma comes into play with this now, because like, just because the school got a facelift and they did all these renovations and made additions, that original school is still there. Those mm-hmm. hallways are still there. All those experiences are still there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just erase what happened just because the school looks different when i went there that basement was terrifying (laughs) there were all these like scary stories about nuns ghosts of nuns going up and down the (laughs) stairs and like it's haunted you know not not actually with maybe it is with spirits it depends on what you believe in it's haunted in other ways haunted in traumatic experience for sure this all plays into multi-generational trauma and there's that other word for it intergenerational historic trauma yes Mm -hmm. yes for sure absolutely and that's one of the questions i get asked weird questions sometimes by people and they'll say one of the questions i was asked when i did the masters the first study uh, people wanted to know if we had so many day schools why were some of our kids sent to residential school and Mm. so that was a question question. i had on my Mm -hmm. mind you know why and so I, i learned by doing some archival research that for the most part the kids who ended up in the residential school system who were from here were either kids who were labeled troublemakers. So residential schools was held over the heads of parents and children as a threat. Mm-hmm. Not just residential school, but it could have mm-hmm. been detention centers and later on, you know, child welfare and so on, those kind of institutions. The residential schools were the threat for a long time. If you don't behave and do what we tell you, then you're, you'll be, you could be sent away. The other thing was there was a lot of poverty. And so I, I learned a lot about that doing this work, both mm-hmm. through the stories, also through the archive. But if your family was severely impoverished, if you were, say, a woman was widowed, maybe you were orphaned as a child, you would be sent to Indian residential school. So there was all these different reasons. Mm-hmm. And so I saw accounts of that in the archive. So there was a number of, of different schools and depended on, you know, the gender of the child because you had to either go to girl school or boy school. Mm-hmm. Some of them were industrial schools, so like Mount St. Elgin, Spanish. And I was really curious why children from here would be sent all the way to Spanish. And it was because because it was Catholic here, it was dominated by Roman Catholic uh, Jesuits, for example, mm-hmm. and then yeah. the Sisters of St. Anne. Yep. The Jesuits here reached out to the Jesuits who ran Spanish and said, you need to take these kids because they're, they have nowhere to go or no one to feed them. And over there, the response was, we're overwhelmed we can hardly feed the kids we have. And they said, if you don't take them, like they literally have nowhere to go. So they took, they took children. When the bridge disaster happened, that was a big yeah. blow to the community. Mm-hmm. All of these women were widowed. It was perceived as, you know, a terrible thing. Like you were helpless if you were widowed. How are you going to make ends meet? Um, when it was, it was the males who were considered head of household and so on. Yeah. So to, the only support the government would offer when the families asked for support was they said, well, we could take your kids and put them in residential school. So some of those children, presumably, I don't, I don't see the names. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I do see names. Mm-hmm. But some of those children went to school, Indian residential school as a result. So parents, you know, did everything they could for their kids. And um, was the residential schools where we're also being like kind of sold to them too, right? Like they're going to learn how to write, how to read how to school like yeah they were it was kind of sold to them that it was good for them to go right also to parents but for the most part there's kind of a mix of of things that happen one is that parents didn't necessarily resist their children being educated or learning another language Mm -hmm. they didn't like the idea they they could they understood our people understood the ideology of these people and what they really wanted what what the intention was Yeah. And there's multiple complaints. Like when I say I'm doing archival research right now, I'm going through Library and Archives Canada uh, microfilms. Yeah. I have tens of thousands of pages that I have to go through and I've 
just on the weekend, I went through 1500 pages of documents and photos. And so it's a huge project. And so it, it goes by, they're categorized by school and by different eras. Mm-hmm. And so I learned so much about the inner workings Like I, I get to, there's some stories I heard growing up and then I get to actually read about it in detail. And that's, so that's one thing I can say is a lot of the oral history I heard growing up in the stories in the community matched with things that I saw in the archive, not in the detail that I see it, mm-hmm. but it's there. And so the people did everything they could all the way through the people in this community to fight against the sisters coming. They would use sometimes kind of a passive resistance if they could. I think that one of the things that is often misunderstood is, um, the, the kind of environment that we, we lived in at the time, our people lived in at the time in, in Gatnawage. The Indian agent and the religious orders had control, total control. So, mm-hmm. you know, you really didn't have power. Or you're, I see complaints from parents about abuses in school and nothing is ever done about it over and over. I see once they created the band council system, the Indian Act, the band council tries to interject on matters of education many times and advocate for the kids. The response is usually most of you people are illiterate and you don't know anything and you don't have a say. And also that the band council has no jurisdiction over educational matters. And so that's one thing I'll tell people is that parents tried, families tried. It's just um, everything was working against everything against us. Mm-hmm. My, my grandfather, my, both my grandparents were part of the day school here, Cattery School. It affected their, my grandfather's family. He, he's the one that spoke to me a little bit about it. And he's 89 years old and he's always been a super strong, silent type of stoic native man. <laughs> a little bit scared of him. Like if you're <laughs> like when you're a little kid, right? Like mm-hmm. he's going to yell at you or something, but oh my God, he started talking like in the past uh, five, five years or so. He just started telling me all these stories and telling me all these things. And his family came from a first language speaking household. Like, you know that we share the same great grandmother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he told me that as a kid, uh, having being sent to day school and having to learn English and not allowed to use your language and all these things, his mother did not speak English at all. He understands it. He's also like a first language speaker, but the multi-generational trauma part of it was that he did not pass the language on to his own kids. Or my grandmother, he never spoke to any of his kids in Ganyageha ever. And he said that's because it was, they were brought up or they were taught to believe that it was useless. English was the language. French was the language. The way that he kind of put it was that he didn't want his kids to learn the language and have a hard time with it later. He wanted to give his kids the best shot out there. So that's why he kept the language out of his family with, they had 10 children and none of them speak. And then what happens after that? None of the grandchildren speak. I don't have language. None of us have language. There's 30 something grandchildren and none of us have language. And now our kids don't have language, but now it's changing a little bit. Like this generation of kids coming up, it's a little bit different from our grandparents, right? Like there's positive changes happening, but that's just how much that whole mindset, you don't have power, the government's against you, your council can't advocate for you, the religion is just so hard. That's how much it infiltrated even family systems and then mm-hmm. trickled down like three generations after that. Oh, we're still there in yeah. terms of, well, what's what's more important, language or giving your kids a chance to, I guess, see the world and what better way to do that than learn English, learn French, learn another language, except, you know, uh, which is important to us, but it can only go so far outside the community. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's a stretch. Yeah. So there's all these different things, right. That are still coming at us. I mean, Mm -hmm. it all depends on what you value. Can we have our language? There's a lot of cultures out there that speak like four or five different languages. They're rich in their own culture, but yet they could still participate in the rest of the world. Mm Mm-hmm. And it still kind of seems like it's black or white for us. It's either you live in your own culture, but I mean, it's symbolic too with our wampum and everything else to the canoe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it's so political. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the only way I could think of it is like, it's, it's difficult to navigate through, through this. Mm-hmm. 
And some of those decisions that people made, because that comes up a lot in my interviews with people and our conversations about day schooling. So sometimes I'll hear that a lot that, you know, that version of things that they were told, like it's worthless and it's just all about English. Some, you know, so there's a sort of sort of idea that, well, my kids will be better off because they faced hardship. But also some of those families, those people were abused in school when they used the language here. And so they're, they're thinking I'm protecting my kids. So there's that whole mentality as well. And so, you know, since we are related and Karina shared that story about that, would, that's my great uncle, her grandfather. My mother was raised by that family. So his mother, my great, great grandmother raised my mom from a newborn. So my mom was raised in a, a first language home. And that was my first home I lived in when I was born. My mom was a teen mom. So our great, great grandma was still alive when I was born and I lived there. She named me Wahesu and she couldn't speak the language. So, I mean, she couldn't speak English. She only was Osko Ngwehwaneha in the house. And so living there as a baby, I must have been, you know, hearing the language. And I, we had to move when I was still a baby. So my mother could speak the language. And then later on, when they introduced language into the schools here in, in the 70s, she was one of those kids in the school who started to get to learn Ganyageha. So she could read and write a little bit. So my mother eventually having, you know, if you're raised by your, your great-grandmother, you lose her early in your life because of age. So she ends up not having anyone to speak to because she was raised by these older generations of people. Um, so she loses the language. And so then I always felt a little bit robbed and angry that I didn't have it because I was so close because I lived in, in a first language home. I actually was Ista who named me Wahesu. And that's why I, for years, I, I pref I've used my Ganyakeha name um, to like reclaim it. And I do a lot of language work in the community and language projects with the KEC. So for me, that's part of the healing of all of that. So this isn't an easy thing to talk about, right? Or present about, even if it's on the outside. It's mm -hmm. always kind of difficult in a way. You can't put a positive spin on something that's just really ugly and hurtful yeah. and yeah. but I do try to take a strength-based approach and I'm always highlighting to people the changes we made in the ed system and how hard people fought for that and now I can see just how long you know just on the weekend looking at 1500 pages of documents over and over people will still speak up even though they were you know always silenced our people would still speak up and try you know they would say I see these council resolutions that say we want our people in the schools teaching our kids. We don't want the nuns. When they brought the nuns here in 1914, the Sisters of St. Anne, that was actually Duncan Campbell Scott. So he's one of the big bad guys in the, the mm -hmm. Indian Act history that people are familiar with his name. He personally reached out to the Archbishop of Montreal and said, you know, I want, I want a religious order. I want nuns to come to what he, they called Kaknawaga at the time to work in the schools. And the archbishop said, well, I'm not in charge of the gray nuns, but I know there's a few other orders. He put him in touch with the Sisters of St. Anne and brought them here. And the people, when they got word of it, right away objected. Mm -hmm. um, and they did a petition. They actually did two different petitions, which had close to 200 signatures on one of them of community members here. And some of the, the papers in Montreal picked up the story at the time to say, like, the Indians are protesting. Wow. Of yeah, course. <laughs> it was so big, you know, back then. And they still brought them here. And again, you know, the Indian agent and the truancy officer had a lot of power in the community. They had the most power. A truancy officer was like a constable. If you didn't put your kid in school, he could come knocking on your door, arrest you, beat you, uh, yeah. fine you. And this is the way that it was. And there were people here that where that happened. So those things did happen. You know, so it was enforced. Compulsory attendance was enforced. You know, so the sisters came and that drastically changed things. And that was a big shift in terms of anglicizing the community because a lot of them were American, English speaking American. Okay. Nuns. Yeah. There was the big shift. So the folk, the shift now after ed reform started is to really put at the center of our education system, Dinin Gordi Hoda. Like yeah. we have Dinin Gordi Hoda curriculum. That was Gatteruni Iris Stacy and the curriculum team at the KEC, you know, put that together and we've been implementing it in the schools. So now it's that that's the core curriculum. So our, our culture and our ways are at the core. It means helping the teachers 
um, with cultural knowledge because there's gaps. Yeah, yeah for sure. There's got to be some trainings or some just, mm -hmm. just trying to get our teachers living it also so that they can teach it. Yeah. Like, uh, like you were mentioning strengths based, that's kind of, uh, like you said, it's, it, this is so dark. The history around this is just so dark, but if we concentrate on those strength based things, like there has been like a reform, I guess, in a way with the way that we're educating our own children here now, but we're also kind of seeing it outside of the reserve, like outside schools throughout Canada now that residential schools and day schools actually make it into curriculum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whereas before, of course it wasn't. The history of Canada and Quebec in a nutshell was complete garbage. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we are seeing a, a little bit of change in, I guess, I don't want to say the right direction, but in a more informed direction. Yeah, we're talking about it. Yeah, there, there's, exactly. There's more we're, talk about it. There's conversation. Mm -hmm. um, just talking about religion in schools too. I mean, I, I was looking up yesterday before this to see when they actually cut it out because day school seemed like it happened yesterday, like the 80s, right? Religion in schools, they decided to scrap it from public schools in 1997. That's even, that's a long time for religion to stay in schools because I remember being at Cattery School and there was Catholic class, Protestant class. And then longhouse class. Mm -hmm. So every time there was religion, you would just separate into your other classes, which is crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a longhouse class when we're all native children and we all should be engrossed in that education mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. But we were separated in terms of religion, which was crazy now that I'm thinking about it. It's like bananas, you know? You, like, you sort mm -hmm. of, we, when we talked about it yesterday, mm -hmm. uh, about religious class or religion class, I kind of forgot about it. It was one of those things. Oh, yeah, I did go to church yeah. when I was in school, <laughs> but I didn't go because I wanted to. I went because it was in school. And I didn't and think we I, had to. Yeah, we had to. I didn't <laughs> even think about it. All right. Well, I guess we got it. It's one of the classes I got to pass. But how do you pass religion? I don't know. Just mm -hmm. go, oh. and, go and eat the wafer and you'll be all right. You had to make communion first before you did that. See, I still remember I did all those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Communion, confirmation. Mm -hmm. I remember once they brought us in to do penance or make penance, like sit in the box with the priest and confess your sins. You're 10 years old. What sins have you committed? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I'm not religious and uh, whatever. I'm not religious now, but back then we were just doing this blindly because someone kind of told us that we had to do it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's, uh, it's unfathomable to think that we had that in the school, in a public school. I know now private schools are still allowed to stay religious, like they're still private religious schools that exist out there. But in the public school, again, that was only 30 years ago that they took it out. So like, that's another change, I guess, that we've seen in education in general. Mm -hmm. I had a point, but I'm not sure I was going with it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> well, you're saying like um, 30 something years, almost what, 25? The last resi residential school that closed down was in 1996. They quote, they, they often say 1996. And I've heard, I've heard from a few indigenous people that they knew of a school open until 98. Okay. So we're talking 96 mm -hmm. and 98. That's very recent. So how did that come to an end for residential schools? Why was that the last one and what caused it to, to finally end? Well, it was actually... In the 1960s, gradually over time, you have to understand residential schools were very expensive to operate. So the department wanted to assimilate Indigenous people, but in the cheapest way possible. So you'll often see that if you look in the records, they say no to a lot of requests. So schools were underfunded, teachers were underpaid, and they're constantly advocating for either for things or salary increases. And the department will say there's no money. And so they, they preferred Indian day schools in the long run because they're cheaper. And so there was a couple of other things that happened in over time in the 1900s. So sometimes people will say, how did the public, how did everyone allow this to happen? How did they allow a place like a residential school to continue to operate decade after decade, right? So for one, the families, the indigenous families had no power and no say. So it wasn't that they didn't speak up or try, they did. But again, no, they had no control. And then in the public, they would often do you know, put all these little bulletins and whatnot and saying, like, look what we're doing. We're saving the savages or, mm. and all of these kind of things, uh, use this kind of language. So they, there was a big propaganda kind of ca campaign that they would use. And, and they used to do here in the community as well. 
bring busloads of visitors to come and they'd have the kids put on a show. So these things were allowed to, you know, the, the impression that they got, the general public was that this was a good thing. This was like a charitable thing. They're being good Christians by, you know, helping these, these poor uncivilized savages. And so the public didn't really, they weren't overly concerned or invested, but there were whistleblowers and some of them were staff at the schools who didn't like what they saw, couldn't live with it. But the the big name that you'll hear about, like in the history books or in the public, is Dr. Peter Bryce. So Dr. Bryce, I think he died around 1932. So he was active as in, in his career from the late 1880s into the early 1900s. He was the chief medical officer for the department. So he had to go around school to school and he, he gathered all these statistics. And he, it was deplorable when he realized how many kids were sick, how many children were dying in these institutions. And he called it out. And then he advocated for it. Once he knew this, and once he saw the treatment with his own eyes, he just couldn't live with it. So he made it his mission to call it out. And they completely ruined his career and his reputation completely. Mm -hmm. So if they could do that to a white man who was a doctor in the uh, early 1900s, they could do anything to anyone. And so he's someone who you'll often hear Cindy Blackstock speak, speak about. So she's the the child and family rights, indigenous child and family rights advocate. And she's, she's leading that whole movement to call the Canadian government to justice for all the wrongs that have been committed against indigenous children through child welfare practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she talks about Bryce a lot and she actually went to his grave and, and she'll say, you know, like in the long run, he was, he was right and he was telling the truth and he tried. So, th- so these things happened at times, right? So it finally ends up they start closing the schools. They're expensive to operate. They're, the buildings are falling apart. And so there was just kind of limited schools here and there once you get into the 1960s because they shifted practices and they started doing what they call a 60 scoop. So instead of putting children into the residential institutions or in the, just Indian day schools, they said, well, well, they started putting children into non-native foster homes and adoptive homes. Mm-hmm. And so that's when that whole, a whole shift happened in assimilation in terms of that forced removal of kids from communities. And that happened a lot here. My mom was actually a 60 scoop survivor. Uh, and that's how she ended up being raised by her great grandmother because she was a 60 scoop baby. And Mana Karina's great, great grandmother wouldn't accept it, that her, her great granddaughter was going to be adopted out. So she and her daughter fought for my mom and advocated for her and raised her in community. And that's my sister's film, Rose, just came out. That's inspired by my mom's story. Mm-hmm. And so the, this is how the schools, they didn't really close. And Cindy Blackstock has an article and a quote, did residential schools really close or just morph into child welfare? Oh, wow. Yeah. That just gave me chills because it's true. We see it here in our own community, like our, our community services has a hard time finding foster parents. Mm-hmm within the community to, to place children that need placement. So a lot of our kids are actually being sent off the reserve now. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's. Yeah. And there's more ch- indigenous <laughs> children in child welfare institutions today than there were at the height of Indian residential schools. So when I do this work, because I, I have done some research on that as well, was I was curious as an undergrad, you know, why are we overrepresented? What is actually happening? in child welfare. So I learned some things and the number one cause for removal is neglect. And so it's not, when you use terms like indigenous, like it's very pan-indigenous, right? Mm-hmm. But what it actually comes down to, the overrepresentation is often, you know, the category First Nations kids. So status, First Nations kids on reserves. Okay. And, it, and the stats are higher in certain provinces like Saskatchewan and Manitoba and places like that where they're actually putting foster kids in hotels because there's nowhere else to put them. Those kinds of things were happening. So when I do this work on Indian day schools, I talk about child targeted assimilation. So it's just a term that I use to address the pattern in the history. So I never talk about day schools when I do a presentation without mentioning child welfare. And I'll, I'll show day school, residential school, 60 scoop and the millennium scoop. And I'll say, so this isn't a thing you can couch in the past. This is a pattern. These are institutions that are part of a bigger system and structure. 
granted, you know, people like to say, I can't be held accountable for what my grandparents did or my ancestors or get over it. But if you have a conscience, if you care about that history, I know some part of us, sometimes you wish we could have done something. Why didn't someone do anything? You can do something for Indigenous children and families today. Because the number one cause uh, of removal that's cited by social workers is neglect. So I got into neglect. Like, what do you mean by neglect? And I went looking into the stats. Most of the time, it's a result of poverty. So Mm -hmm. what you end up doing is because either perhaps a single mother can't be there. So the child's alone because she's maybe she's working or something. Yeah. The house is in uh, poor condition. There's not enough food. These kinds of things. So instead of addressing the conditions the larger of poverty, issues yeah. around that. Exactly. They apprehend the children, put them into foster homes where they pay the foster parents or an institution is paid. And today you can even, you get a pension if you're a foster parent. Yeah. And so instead of somehow diverting those funds to support services for families, this is what happens. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of other things. Sometimes it's justified to remove a child from a home. Yeah. But there has to be more support. There has to be more recognition of the multi-generational effects of all of this. Because in Gatnawage, I can tell you there's a lot of change. Just when I did the first study that I finished in 2019, when I sat with those elders, they said, this is the first time I told anybody my day school story. Mm -hmm. That's what they told me. I never, they said, I never told anyone this much. And I spent, you know, whole days with some of them. And we got, we got really deep I, and I felt really connected to them. And, you know, I had to be equally vulnerable and open. And it was like a really beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm, I'm doing this study and I'm talking to a lot more people in different generations, I find that because of the settlement, it kind of broke things open in a way. So there's pros and cons. So there are some people who weren't ready yet either to talk or to accept that this happened. Mm-hmm. And then they did because of the settlement. And that, that settlement can be re-traumatizing. But I find now when I sit with people, they're kind of primed. So in the past where it was like this whole almost therapeutic session we did and um, many of the people I sit with, I sit down with them and they're like, they already have been talking about this and they've already thought about it a lot and they know exactly what they want to tell me. And so on average, I spend an hour with a person and they just go and they're like, I think that's it. <sighs> And so they're all like primed now, most of the people I speak to. There are still a few who, usually the more difficult, terrible things, people will tell me off the record, sort of, off the, off the recorder. So those are difficult. You know, it's not easy for me to sit with someone sometimes and hear all of that out. Mm-hmm. And I'm patient. And a person's well-being is the most important thing. So I never ask pointed questions about abuse. When I sit with someone, I just tell them, you know, I'm just here to... to I want to hear what school was like for you, what your life was like at that time. And whatever you want to tell me, I'm willing to hear. And we go from there. And that's kind of the way that it goes. And a lot of families too, families like ours, there's layers there, right? Residential school, day school. In my family, there's all of it. So I'm trying to tell people, you know, all of these things happen to us. It doesn't feel like separate and it doesn't feel like it's over to me. And that's why I do the work that I do. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the ways that people say, how do you process this? Like, how do you live with yeah, it? Yeah, that was going to be like one of the questions that I bring up is that to be able to listen to all those stories have to be like you you said, it's hard to hear it, hard to hard to hold it, hold that space for people because you have to be vulnerable as well. Mm-hmm. What do you do for your own wellness after that? Like, how do you process whatever feelings you may have that come out of that as well? Mm-hmm. I think... And on one sense, I'm a little bit desensitized because I've done this for so long and I've heard so many things, but every now and then it comes up. All of a sudden there's a lump in your throat. And so I do a lot of physical activity. Actually doing that first study kind of changed my life in a lot of ways. Like it just, it was um, an amazing transformation for me. Mm -hmm. Amazing realization. And one of the reasons is because sitting with people and hearing them talk about, especially the violence. One person I sat with, his name was Frank, when he, he, he had, it was the most difficult interview I did. There was just a lot of violence and a lot of abuse. And, but he just, when he talked about the anger and how this happened in the schools and his parents experienced it in the schools and his grandparents. And then he said, you go out in the community. So say you were, you misbehaved in school and they tell your father, he might beat you up when you come home. 
this was his reality. Yeah. And he said, then out in the community, if the, the RCMP were around, they could do whatever they want. You know, there was a curfew at times, different things. He said, so there was a culture of violence and it became normalized. So there was just violence everywhere you were witnessing or experiencing. And sitting and listening and talking through all of that, I just realized I was recontextualizing things that happened in my life and in my family through the generations. Mm-hmm. It was like I suddenly was able to actually see the root of it all. And I was going back through it because, you know, a lot of people need to focus on the good and the positive. And I do language work. I went to Radhi Wanhanirdats. But there's a grief in language work. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't address the grief of it and we don't, we don't finally break the silence and tell the truth, we're not going to help people heal, especially the ones who are hanging on to very dark stories and very dark things. And uh, now in the community, I'm that day school person, right? So sometimes people would just approach me at a at the post or at an event and say, like, you know what? And tell me a story. And one person told me their father was kind of stoic and gruff and cold their whole life. And then only now he's opened up and told them, like, this is what I seen in school. This is what happened to me in school. And now they understand why they were the way they were. And I had, I, I had that understanding. You know, I had that realization and I was able to forgive people in my family a lot more easy, you know, and it, it was easier to have the conversations to understand where they're coming from. So that was like a powerful change for me. So I do a lot of physical, physical activity now. It helps. I also talk to elders. So the way you would maybe go see a therapist because I'm traditional and I, I was raised longhouse most of my life from when I was a, a kid, I sit with an elder, a community elder. And we have sessions and we could just talk about whatever I want. I've tried talking to a therapist, but I just prefer the elder. It's not the same. (laughs) No, I get the spiritual and the cultural and then I get the wisdom. It's just what I need. I, I, oh, I've recently had a conversation with an elder. I've, uh, I've, I've never actually met her before. I like, she's a mom of somebody that I know, but I met her for the first time and I swear to God, it was like. A mirror. She was just, she just, she knew me right off the bat. She knew everything about me. She knew exactly who I was. And then she was just spouting all this stuff that like she heard me saying, but I'm not processing. She's like, you literally just said this. Mm -hmm. You literally just said that. Why don't you take your own advice or what? Like, she's just, you know, I swear that the conversation with that woman in that 30 minute time span that I met with her was so much more some like... So much more meaningful than I'm not, I'm not saying that counseling is a bad thing. It's really not. Mm -hmm. But for certain things, like my spirit felt like it was satisfied after Mm -hmm. I I spoke with this person because she knows my family. She knows my upbringing. She knows my mom. Like Mm -hmm. she knew everything about me. I can't hide from her. (laughs) So if you go to a counselor, they don't know anything about you except for Mm -hmm. what you tell them. Well, the conversation different. (laughs) It feels more natural when you're talking to an elder anyway. Like mm-hmm. when you go see counseling, you're, you're making yourself go do that. But when you're sitting with yeah. an elder, it's just like a conversation you're having and mm-hmm. that's the medicine. Yeah. yeah. And that set the tone. Um, my first interview set the tone for all of this for me, because the very first interview I did uh, about day schools was with Joe McGregor. Mm-hmm. So we all know Joe, we love Joe, <laughs> yeah. right? And I'm best friends with one of his daughters. And, um, the, you know, I've known him my whole life in a certain way as an elder. And so I heard him speak one time, you know, when he does an opening and he talked about day school. And I, so on the side, I said, Hey, Joe, do you mind that we sit and talk about day, your day school experience? I heard you mention it. Um, and so, you know, I get a call one day out of the blue and it's Amelia McGregor. And she says, come over, Joe's ready right now. I'm like right now. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I pack up all my stuff, you know, and I'm like, I trained for this. Mm-hmm. I'm a grad student. I'm going to go do this interview. And so I did the interview with Joe and it was one of those situations where he said, I never told anybody this. Um, And he talked about the difficulties he had. And there was this moment where he, you know, he told me that he was the sitting in school and the feelings he had, the things he went through. He said, I made a decision then that I was going to be a natural person, that this wasn't for me and that my life was going to be different. And he said, uh, like we should be natural people. And he talked about if a rock rolls off the hill and just falls there and no one touches it and it's natural. And so I, I felt like he was trying to say, you know, that we shouldn't have been touched. We should have been left alone. Mm-hmm. Just be who we are. And, 
And so that's why he led the, led the life in the end that he led. A big part of it was school. So after I do my interview with him, and I, I know, you know, it was in the evening, and I said, I know you want to feed the horses, so I'm going to get out of your way. And Joe says, no, 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 you heard my story, now you sit down, and I'm going to tell you what I see. And so we had this whole session, mm -hmm. like a healing session. And I was so worried that I was like, worried about, you know, the people I'm working with, and I'm doing this work, this story work, not to upset them or hurt them. Or So I was, that was my frame of mind going in. And I only realized afterwards, they were treating me like I was their grandchild, all these elders. And he said to me, I don't want you to leave here because of what I told you and for you to have a heaviness in your chest. So we're going to talk it out. And we did. He, he not only did that, but he did what you would expect of an elder, right? He told me what I should be doing with my life, about my <laughs> <Yes>. purpose, <laughs> all of those things. <laughs> when I left Joe's house, I don't live that far. You know, I live in like South Texas and he lives on McGregor Farm and I stopped halfway in between, like in the middle of the, of the bush, and I just bawled. And it, I, it was because I didn't know till that very moment in that first interview if what I was doing was the right thing, if I was the right person to do it, if, if there was anything meaningful that was going to come out of this work. So it was after that first interview that I knew that I was on the right track, I was on the right path, and I just kept going. And so each, it just was a coincidence. I didn't select elders. I was told by my committee you can only pick three people and you can only pick one school for your master's because the master's is smaller in scope. Mm -hmm. It just happened to be, I said, okay, well, the first few people I come across will be the ones I interview. They happen to be elders and they happen to be people who were, you know, key figures in the community or who did healing work. And so they worked on me when we sat together, <laughs> like we sat together for hours and they worked on me in a way. So I grew a lot. They really just like the most painful things you want, you think you want to bury that are, that you don't want to bring up. They wanted me to just let things out. And so that set the whole tone for all the work that I do. So part of me was a little bit sad that going into the interviews now that people are primed and they're like, here's my story. Yeah. But I still get those moments where I can really connect with someone. And so that's the other thing that I do to deal with the, like the pain of it or the heaviness is that I do language work. So I get to be part of the solution. I get to be part of the medicine. So I mentioned that I grew up longhouse. Yeah. When I was in Cattery School, it was the same thing. Religious instruction was part of it in the 80s. My grandmother decided to retrace her roots and she took us back to the longhouse with her. And I was a little kid. And then I got to the point where I told my mom, I don't want to go to church anymore because I'm not a church person. So my mom wrote to the school and said, my daughter's not allowed to. Don't make her go to church. Don't make her go to religion class. So they piled all of us. It wasn't actually longhouse class. I think it was called morals class. Okay. So there was Jehovah's Witnesses in there, a couple, and anyone who wasn't Catholic or Protestant was in there. So I just remembered how difficult it was. I, I still felt ostracized a lot. There wasn't a lot of longhouse kids in the school when I was there. It still wasn't kind of the norm yet. It wasn't like the old days and the things I hear where they were like, there were two kids were longhouse in the whole school you know it wasn't like that but there still wasn't many so I saw the change in the school system you know I hear from people my age who said who will say you know the first time I learned anything language or culture I learned it at school and that's what it means to do this kind of these this education reform you know we want to kids to I don't want kids to have to choose you guys both talked earlier about it seems like you still have to choose learn the language or learn French. And yeah. I yep. don't want to choose. I don't want to choose between being longhouse and educated. I'm longhouse. I'm a second language learner and I'm, I will have my PhD. I don't want our kids to have to choose. Anything. And they shouldn't, they shouldn't have to. Mm -hmm. Just a, a little bit of ex my own experience. I went to Cattery school. The first time I ever stepped foot in a longhouse, I was already 16 years old. And it was because I was a part of Mad Group. And Mad Group was a teen youth group here in the community that took us to the longhouse for a ceremony. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I stepped foot in a longhouse. So I didn't grow up with culture at all. And then straight from Cattery School, I actually went outside for high school too. Mm -hmm. So I was, I went to Montreal for high school. Straight from Montreal, I, high school, I went to CJEP, I went to university. Mm -hmm. I've been in Montreal in the city every single day since I was 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, that's my culture. Mm -hmm. Not really, but like, that's what I grew up knowing. Mm -hmm. I felt a massive disconnect from this community for a long, 
long, long time. Mm -hmm. And it's not until I started to actually work here in the community full time, which is something I've always wanted to do. I went to school to work with community, to work with youth. So when I got here, I was kind of like, oh, man, <laughs> like I, I didn't fit in here either, because that's the change that we've seen here on the reserve is that more kids are staying here to go to school. Mm -hmm. More kids are going to high school here. More kids are at the longhouse. Ceremony's huge. We're just, you know, it's it's flourishing in mm -hmm. a way. It's thriving again. Like we relit, mm -hmm. relit the fire again. And that's something I didn't have, but something as an adult working with the community is that I have to teach myself now. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. It's really hard. I've been on and off with a language course. I've been attending some ceremony to try to learn it because it's who I am. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to have to choose between who I am and, you know, my education or my interests. Like, why can't, why can't people here mesh the two? Mm -hmm. And there are still some kids, you know, that go to school off reserve. And that's, that's fine too. But I noticed that these kids who are attending off reserve schools still have a lot of their culture, mm -hmm. which is fantastic, right? Because that's what you want to see. So it's like there has been these positive shifts from when I went to high school in the 90s to kids going to high school now and then. Mm -hmm. So like there's there's been changes and I'm happy to see that there's changes. Yeah. And there it's it's a beautiful thing to see to, you know, I put my kids in immersion schools. And so as a family, when you make that decision, then there's a commitment because it means they will have challenges in English and French later on, potentially. And then I made sure they had the opportunity to go to survival school. I didn't get to go to survival school. I didn't have a choice in where I went to school, right? It was, I was told you're going to Billings and that was it. <laughs> and so I went to Billings. So those are decisions we made for our kids. You know, we, I wanted them to have the language and to support that decision. That's why I went to, first I took parent classes at night and then I went to Radiwananhirdats. Although I, I grew up going to, to the longhouse and, you know, so I knew ceremony and different things. I didn't realize what I was missing in terms of like, you know, learning who we are and knowing who we are. Until I went to Radhi when I'm here, that's in learn language. It's like I didn't know what I didn't that's know, right? So that changed things for me. And I, having children changed things for me too. There's my parents have 20 grandchildren already. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about kind of the experience I wanted them to have, the way, you know, the world I wanted them to grow up in. I wanted it to be different. And that means working on breaking cycles. That, that's the hardest thing realization I had in all of this work and all that history that happened, whether we like it or not, the burden is on our shoulders to break the cycles yeah. and, and to do something about all of this pain because they're out there. They're certainly not going to be the ones that help us heal. And that was a hard thing for me to accept was it really became obvious to me some of the ways I'm perpetuating the cycle in my own home or in my own life, you know, so addressing that has been difficult. And so I'm just like, this is kind of like my healing process too, going through all of this. And I want to be able to bring what I learn and what I find out in the archive and through the stories back to the community. Because a lot of people, that, that culture of silence that's been around all of this, yeah, we've, we're, we're grieving. There's a lot of shame too. And yep. so we have to take the shame away from the people who didn't have a chance to learn culture, the people who don't speak the language. I, I speak to, to, you know, leaders in the community who will... They've done all of these accomplishments. They work for community their whole life. And they'll still say, I feel like a failure because I don't speak the language. So that's a shame that we have to let go. It doesn't belong to us. They, they, put, they did that to us. Yeah. Um, and so those are some of the things I try to tell people. What I want to come out of my work is I'm, I'll be showcasing, you know, all of the, the times, the different forms of resistance and all the efforts. And so it goes way deeper than 1969, what they tried to do to reform the schools and get the nuns out or protect the children. So our people have always tried. Um, mm -hmm. That's one thing, you know, and, and just encouraging, taking the shame away and being more encouraging about learning language and culture. Yeah. Because, you know, that's still a, a powerful thing that holds people back. Uh, my grandmother said she tried when she was 19 to go back to the longhouse. And she said, because she didn't have a clan, whoever it was who greeted her there at the time turned her away. So then it wasn't until she was an elder that she went back again and then was finally named the Longhouse and so on. And so she said, I wonder, you know, what my life would have been like if they didn't turn me away. 
when I was 19. And so sometimes I wonder what my life would have been like if this history didn't happen, because then mm -hmm. I wouldn't be doing research on this. And I, we wouldn't be doing, you know, put, people put lifetimes into education reform and language revitalization. And as much as I love it, you know, it, it, there's a grief in it. There's so. definitely a grief. Yeah. I kind of feel like the healing process has maybe started. There's a long way to go though, right? It's multiple generations of grief and trauma around this. But just the fact that the silence is broken, communication, mm -hmm. there's so many learnings in that. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation with my mom and my sister a few years ago, and it was about some really big, dark issues. And we were all sitting around a table and we all shared experiences. Um, and I said, you know, if we could have had this conversation when I was a teenager, my life would have been different. If yeah. my mom could have yeah. been open with me about certain things, uh, I said, you know, these are the conversations people need to be having again. So that's what I hope happens, that there's good communication because blowing this wide open has, there's cons oh, to it sure. too, the way yeah. it happened. Yeah. There's, there's still, you know, negative feelings about it. There could still be violence about it. There's anger, mm -hmm. there's sadness, and it's going to be expressed in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. So, but it's blown wide open, but how mm -hmm. do we, how do we keep the fire, but controlled, mm -hmm. you know? So how do we keep, I, I don't know how to explain it. Like, how do we help everybody heal here? Like, cause everyone's wounds are just mm -hmm. open now. <laughs> so what do we do? What do we do here? What we are doing some things mm -hmm. already. There's a lot, you could see a shift in our children now, how they're a lot more open and they're validating their own emotions and mm -hmm. that's huge, right? To talk about emotions. We all grew up in, I grew up in a household where we didn't talk about emotions mm -hmm. because that's part of all this trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is some healing happening. There's still a mm -hmm. long way to go. There is. And, and everyone has to start somewhere. And I realized because of spending half my childhood with my grandma, my grandma Millie, she gave me a lot of tools that I think not many other kids are given when they're young and not only bringing me back to the longhouse, but things we did that she normalized. So telling me community history and uh, we talked about emotions and we talked about everything, you know, and we burned tobacco every day. She was one of those people who would get up and burn tobacco in the morning and we'd give thanks, you know, she would tell me, think if you don't want to say give thanks out loud, because I was kind of a quiet kid, I'm like an introvert, a little shy. She would say, give thanks in your mind. And then she taught me how to use my mind. Like she said, if you're afraid, saying things in the language. If you feel like there's a negative entity around you, the words you would say in your mind, or you could say out loud, using tobacco. And I only realized in retrospect, I dealt with a lot of anxiety that way. She gave me all of these tools. And I've sat in circles with people and I've had these like one-on-ones. And I realized because of this history of schooling, a lot of our people, one of the things they lost was the ability to heal. They don't have practical tools. So they feel like, you know, this is only something I can get from a doctor or a healer or a, I have to go somewhere and get it. So that's one thing I, um, when I defended my master's thesis, uh, there were some people in the room from the ed system. And I said, I, one of the things I recommend is that whatever we do in community, even in the education system, it needs to be trauma informed. You're talking about a community that was, there's so many layers of trauma. So start giving kids when they're little, normalize, whether it's burning tobacco or it's something else. It's hot. They're tools, debriefing. Some tools, kind of tool. Sharing yeah. their feelings. Normalize it from when they're little in the school system. Mm -hmm. Give them some tools um, and that'll make a difference. And the other thing I learned doing, doing all of this work was it matters what we tell our children about this history and our experiences and when we tell them in their development. So you could do potentially a lot of harm to your child by either completely, you know, shutting down and not telling them anything, mm -hmm. but by giving them too much information or the wrong information at the wrong time. So they link this to the high rates of suicide in indigenous communities or other issues in, in someone's lifetime. So yes, it's important for them to know about this history, but that strength-based based approach, giving them tools and opportunities and how to cope with it, how to address it, is really important. And so I just think trauma-informed practice oh yeah, a whole, in a holistic kind of sense in all aspects yep. of our lives is really important right now, you know. And so I'm thankful to the people in the community, you know, like there's Louise Mayo, 
who's an Indian school coordinator, and she does wonderful work with mm-hmm. the people who were claimants, and she and I work closely together. Um, and there's a lot of elders doing work, and you know I'm working with an elder, so just to keep doing that good work, yeah, you know, for people to support each other and to stop stigmatizing healing and health and well-being, and it's really important. And yeah, and I, I think we're seeing a shift in that as well. Like we we do actually have pr- practitioners here that are now teaching. I forget what, exactly what the title of the training is, but it's like a two day intensive training about multi generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's going into, I think it just hit all the major, major organizations here. So it's like it's going from the top levels down and going to be filtered out towards re- like the rest of the community at some point. Mm-hmm. But that too is going to make a major shift to just in the way that our organizations are thinking also. Mm-hmm. Everyone is coming from a trauma-based or trauma-informed place now in terms of making decisions and helping our people heal here. So I guess we're going to wrap up the episode. Does anyone have anything they would like to say just as a closing statement or uh, what has would you have anything? Well, I want to say thank you for having me. I want to say Nyawako to the community for, you know, supporting the work that I do. Many people, you know, stop me and, and have positive things to say. And so I appreciate that encouragement and to the people who are sharing their stories and opening up. So Nyawako, you know, just for their strength here in Gautnawage for everyone's strength. And that's in our history. I'm seeing it and writing, you know, and um, in the archives. Uh, and the, wherever I end up from here, I am I love doing this kind of work and I'll always be working for the community one way or another. So, but Nyawa Goa for having me. Nyawa, Nyawa for uh, coming in. Episode one, a heavy topic <laughs> to, to, to start <laughs> off our, our podcast. Our next episode is going to be a little more... Uh, lighthearted dealing <laughs> dealing with uh while well, we're entering october so we're going to be uh, doing something kind of spooky right a little bit spooky yeah our next episode coming up for october will actually be about gunawage's spooky stories and gunawage's legends and we're going to be connecting that to the importance of oral tradition and within our culture mm-hmm. so um we're gonna have some pretty neat collaborations and i actually believe merrick will be on with us too oh really <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's the best scary story teller i know <laughs> so uh now everybody for being here thank you for tuning in to kci kindled creating space for meaningful dialogue The views and opinions of the guests expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of your DWSA and its employees.